The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So why does traditional Judaism say that there's an association between the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Pentecost? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. If you have a Jewish-related question of any kind, it can relate to the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew language. It can relate to Israel today. It can relate to Jewish tradition. It can relate to Yeshua being the Messiah of Israel, Messianic prophecy, anything like that. Jewish related. Give me a call, 866-348-7884. That's 866-34-TRUTH. I don't know why things work like this on radio, but there have been many shows over the years where there are relatively few calls through a good part of the broadcast, and then the closer we get to the end, a flood of calls that we can't possibly get to. Now, sometimes, depending on the subject matter, we'll be slammed with calls through the entire show. And sometimes with an interview, people just sitting back listening. But if you have a question and you're able to call earlier, it gives us a better chance of getting to you later in the show. Okay, we are coming into the High Holy Days, and that begins on the Jewish calendar, well, on our calendar, September 25th, all right? So the evening of September 25th will be the Yom Truah, the sounding of the trumpet of the shofar blast, which in traditional Judaism becomes Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year. Ten days later, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Five days after that, week-long celebration of Sukkot, tabernacles and there is the eighth day of the festival added on all right so why do i want to talk to you about about shavuot today about pentecost which which happened back in the spring it it, it was on my mind last night thinking about the high holidays coming in judaism called yamim Noraim, the days of all the 10 days from, from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur being especially sacred, set apart for repentance and introspection and things like that. But I, I was just thinking back to larger issues relating to the Torah, relating to the giving of the Torah. And in Jewish tradition, the Torah was given uh, at Mount Sinai at the time of the Feast of Shavuot. All right? Now, it is called weeks because it marks out the seven weeks and a day from Passover to Pentecost. So God says in, in the laws concerning this, Leviticus 23 gives the overview of, of all the high holy days as, as well as uh, talks about the Sabbath. But, but when, we, when we look at this, uh, I would not have thought, based on my own calculations, that from the Passover from the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, from Passover to Sinai would have been 50 days. Now, the rabbis have come up with that count, and if you look in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, on the third new moon after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day they entered the wilderness of Sinai. Well, since you have the, uh, the first of the 
uh, excuse me, you have Israel coming out in the middle of the month, right? The 14th day, the 15th day leaving. So they're celebrating Passover, this, this new festival, this new time of, of uh, remembrance. So they are, they are now in a situation where 14 days later, roughly, you get to the first new moon. Then 30 days later, second new moon. Then third new moon would be 30 days after that. So just looking at this, I, I, I would say, okay, this is obviously not uh, 50 days from Passover to Sinai. A rabbinic calculation comes out differently, but uh, in any event, that's what they've come up with. All right. Put aside the fact that I don't see it as being chronological. It is Jewish tradition that the Torah was given on Mount Sinai. So during the time of Shavuot, there is the special celebration of the giving of the Torah to Israel. Now, if you look at this from a spiritual point of view, the parallels are very accurate. I don't see it as chronological, but from a spiritual point of view, the parallels are very, very interesting. Because let's just say you agree with the tradition that God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai. And if you're a traditional Jew and you want to give the chronological argument for it, please, please call. I, I don't see how it works, but I know there are traditional arguments for it, so please call and provide those traditional arguments. But let's just say, okay, according to Jewish tradition, Torah was given at Mount Sinai. Now, Pentecost, Torah was given at Mount Sinai. We all agree with that on Shavuot, Pentecost. Now, fast forward to uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So 1,400, years later. What happens there? The giving of the law on Mount Sinai, then Moses going up on the mountain to be with the Lord, staying there 40 days, 40 nights. By the time he comes down, the children of Israel worshiping idols. And what happens as a result of that? 3,000 Israelites die. Roughly 3,000 Israelites die. What happens when the Holy Spirit is given... At, at, at Shavuot, Pentecost in the New Testament. 3,000 Israelites come to faith. Doesn't stop there. What was one of the conspicuous elements when God came down on Mount Sinai? Fire. What was one of the conspicuous elements when the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost? Tongues of fire. There's even a Jewish tradition that says that because you did not just have the children of Israel there, you had the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them, so they would not have spoken Hebrew, that on Mount Sinai, God spoke in multiple languages at the same time. And of course, we know that at Pentecost, God spoke in multiple languages at the same time to the Jews who had been gathered from all around the world. So the parallels really are interesting. I just don't know how it works chronologically to say that the law was given to Israel at that time. But that is what traditional Jews believe. That is what traditional Jews celebrate. And for sure, even without the chronology, we can see the parallel. You said, does that mean the law was bad? No, quite the opposite. It means the law was perfect. It, it means it was a reflection of God's goodness and attributes. Now, there were aspects of the Torah that were given by God based on the weakness of human flesh, such as divorce in Deuteronomy, the 24th chapter. 
And that's what Jesus says in Matthew 19, because of the hardness of your hearts, it was given. In other words, divorce was not the ideal, but because of human weakness and human sinfulness, it was given as a necessary, helpful concession. So in, in this case, we say the law itself sets standards, loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our neighbor as ourself. It set other kinds of standards, and we fell short. When I say we, I mean the people of Israel. Whoever it was given to, any nation, any people would have fallen short. Because the law was bad? No, because the law was good. That's what Paul writes in Romans 7, that, that the reason sin was awakened in him through the law the reason that do not covet awaken within him all times of covetousness is because he is sinful, but the law is spiritual, the law is holy, the law is good. That's why the law, God's teaching, God's standards, God's authoritative revelation could not save because it showed us what was right, but did not give us the supernatural ability to climb up to those heights. It's here, it's accessible, it's, it's doable in terms of nobody is stopping you from doing it. Nobody is stopping you from carrying it out. Here, just, just think of New Testament commands that are given. Is anybody stopping us from fulfilling the Great Commission? Is anybody stopping us from praying? Is anybody stopping us from doing various good deeds? Is anyone stopping us from living a whole life? No, we can do it if we choose to, but so much of the time we don't choose to, which is why we need a savior. So the Torah, Paul writes in Galatians 3, and with that in particular in mind, the, the Sinai covenant and the Torah with that was a pedagogue, was a schoolmaster, was someone that would oversee the education of the children, the household slave that would watch over them to bring us to the Messiah. When, when you read through the book of Deuteronomy in the 30th chapter and God says to Israel, it's, it's right here. It's not too difficult. You don't need someone to figure it out for. It. It's right here. You can do it. And then the 31st chapter, Moses says, look, I know how wicked and evil you've been while I've been here. I, I know what you've done in my lifetime. You're going to be much worse after me. And then in chapter 32, Here's a song to sing as witness against yourselves because you're going to sin and you're going to be scattered. Why? That's human nature. So as Paul writes in Romans 7, in the inner being, we affirm law is good. Law is right. What God says is right. We know it's true and yet we don't live it out. That's part of the purpose of the Torah. Paul understood that as someone who loved the law. People said, no, traditional Jew, religious Jew, observant Jew, whatever say what Paul says about the law. He attacks the law. He denigrates the law. You look at Psalm 19, you look at Psalm 119. They exalt the law. Paul exalted the law and understood the purpose of the law because of which he recognized that there had to be a new and better covenant, which God himself had said. God himself had said, because of the failure of the people of Israel, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, I will make a new and better covenant. And that's what we experience, the first fruits now, that we experience the beginning of it now. We're not the fullness of it, as the nation of Israel fully embraces the Messiah, will come into the fullness of it, and we're still in these earthly bodies, not yet resurrected into a place of perfect obedience. But we enjoy the first fruits of having a new heart. We enjoy the first fruits of having a new nature.
we enjoy the first fruits of supernatural empowerment to do what God has commanded us to do. By grace, we are not just forgiven of sin, but empowered to live above it. And as we draw on that, not to full perfection in this world because of human nature, but as we draw on it, even while in this world, we can experience the new life of the Spirit. Let's draw on everything that God has given to us. Okay, 866-348-7884. We come back. Uh, maybe I'll start taking calls. But I also want to talk to you about biblical prophecy is not as simple as we often make it out to be. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. I tell you what, before I get into this issue of biblical prophecy not being as simple as we make it out to be. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Let's, uh, let's grab some calls. Also, post it on Twitter for folks to post questions there. I may get to some as well. Uh, let's go to Elena and Alexandra, Virginia. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Always an honor to, to hear your uh, show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I have a question, more general questions in regards to translation of the Bible. It is of my understanding that uh, the New Testament was written down in the Greek language. So basically, is there a gap of when the apostles were writing down the book, uh, is there a gap in missing uh, of the understanding of the Hebrew culture uh, within the words that they were using? Um, moreover, uh, does our translation, the translation of the Greek into um, several languages in the world, does it make really justice to the depth uh, of the text that uh, we're supposed to understand? Yes, the, the, the translations really do open up the depth of the languages. There's nothing magical about Hebrew or Greek. They, they are not better than English or Spanish or, or Russian or Chinese. They're ancient languages uh, and, some, uh, and then spoken to this day in different forms. So when the apostles were writing, and there may have been some documents, part of which originally in Hebrew or Aramaic, but everything that we have of the New Testament was written in Greek. That's because that was the language that was most used at the time and could communicate things best to the ancient world. So... Uh, it's it, it's not like, well, Jesus said this in Aramaic, or he said this in Hebrew, now that you put it in the Greek, we won't understand it anymore. No, God would not have done that otherwise. God, God would not have uh, allowed that to happen. He could have had the world speaking Hebrew at that time. I mean, there are any number of different things that God could have arranged. Uh, but 
nothing is lost. We trust that the writers were inspired by the Spirit as they wrote. We understand that, that this is God's Word. So they were inspired to write in Greek, adequately conveying the meanings. If people say, no, 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 unless you bring this back to the original Hebrew or the original Aramaic, then you're not going to understand it. Uh, in point of fact, we don't have an original Hebrew or an original Aramaic. What we have is the ancient Greek. So first, as they wrote in Greek, they adequately conveyed what needed to be conveyed. It's always good to study background. It's always good to uh, ask how this might have been expressed in Hebrew or Aramaic and, and then how the New Testament writers understood that as they conveyed it. But we're getting it the way God wanted us to get it. And that's why if you look at a hundred different translations, modern translations into English and other languages, if they're done by good scholars, the overall sense is going to be consistent. Anytime you translate from one language to another, you're, you're going to have a different expression of things. But look, I've preached around the world, and if I have a good translator, the message I preach is exactly what hits home. The overall thing I was getting across is exactly what hits home, and the people respond as if I had been speaking to them in English. So even though it's a different culture and a different language, because this person knows my heart, we are in the spirit together, and the overall message is getting out together, then it's clear. All the more when it's meticulous Bible translation. So background is good to know, always helpful. But as one who spent decades working with ancient languages, uh, I'm totally free preaching in English, using the English Bible, because I know overall the spirit and, and the word is being correctly conveyed. Thank you, Dr. Brown. That clarifies a lot. Um, some kind of worry that I have been. There's a there's a tiny group uh, within uh, a, a church uh, back in Florida that they they're trying to kind of de deconstruct the Greek and 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 put it into Hebrew words because they worried about basically losing uh, the true meaning of the culture and the text and what what was supposed to to be said. Um, yeah, people but, people I have mean, been doing I, that. <laughs> people have been doing that for decades, and it's here. Here's the deal. God preserved the New Testament for us and gave it to us in Greek. That's, that's what we have. That's what he gave. Uh, to try to put it back in Hebrew, why on earth, say, would you try to put 1 Corinthians into Hebrew? Paul, Paul wrote it to Greek speakers, Greek-speaking Gentiles. Paul, Paul wrote it to them in Greek. If he wrote it in Hebrew, nobody would have understood it. You say, oh, no, no, I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount teachings of Yeshua. You could make a better argument that he spoke in Aramaic than he spoke in Hebrew. But either way, once you try to reconstruct what it was based on the Greek, if you say the Greek got it wrong, that would mean that the apostles wrote it incorrectly. And for all of church history, we've had it incorrectly. If you say they got it right, then you're just putting it back to, to what we already have. If you say we, they really got it wrong, now you're trying to figure out with your own brain what it might have been. Dr. Brown said that two plus two is four, but I think he actually meant this. It's pure speculation. It is utterly worthless, fruitless, and it's, it's bad scholarship too to think that you're gonna accurately be able to do it. If you put 10 top Hebrew and Greek scholars in 10 separate rooms 
and say, take the Sermon on the Mount and put it back into what you think was an original Hebrew or their Aramaic and Greek scholars. Take the Sermon on the Mount from Greek and put it back into the original Aramaic as you think it would be. It, ten different scholars, top scholars. At the end of the day, every one of them is going to have something different. They're going to have come up with something different because it's, it's, you're trying to reconstruct and it's speculation. And it's, it is a bad, bad exercise. I have an article on this, but it's an academic article I wrote in 93. It's, it's just a bad, dangerous practice. And last thing to reiterate, all that has been preserved for us is the Greek manuscripts. We don't have an ancient Hebrew or an ancient Aramaic original. We have the Greek. That's what was preserved, and that's what was used by the early church and recognized as authoritative. So fear not. Uh, I, I do have some expertise in the subject. Fear not. Ignore what they're doing and be secure in the word that we have. Okay? Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. I'll follow your suggestion and, uh, and your advice. Uh, that, that's why I called. Uh, All right. I've been feeling pretty wary about it. Thank Leave you. It. Yep. Don't worry about that at all. All right, I'll, I'll tell you something really interesting. I've used this example many a time. But we know that the book that's in the Apocrypha in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sira, the wisdom of, of Ben Sira. So we know, because of the beginning of that, that, it says it was originally written in Hebrew, and then he translated it into Greek. Right? So... You know, as it's being passed down and now written, the one writing translated into Greek. It was originally in Hebrew. So we know there was a Hebrew original. So early last century, there was a Jewish scholar who said, well, since we know it was originally in Hebrew, let me take the book of Ben Sir, how many, 40, 50 chapters, and let me translate that back into Hebrew. I'm going to try to reconstruct. In German, it's Rick Übersetzung. Is the, is the term. So back translation. I'm, I'm going to take the, the Greek text. I'm going to put it back in an original Hebrew because we know there was an original Hebrew. So he did that. He was a good scholar. Well, uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls and then subsequent discoveries at Masada, there was found the, the text of the Hebrew Ben Sira at Masada. So now we have the original or something very close to the original. So they compared it to, to, to Margolis' work, where he went from Greek back to Hebrew, he didn't get a single verse right. It's not his fault. It's, it's just an almost impossible science. He got many words, right? I mean, that'd be common sense. But as I understand it, he did not get a single verse exactly right, even though we know there is an original Hebrew. Oh, I've seen these reconstructions. And, you know, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. It really means blessed are those who pursue peace. Like, where did you get that from? Well, somebody misunderstood this and misunderstood this. Oh, so those Christians or Messianic Jews saying that, then what you're saying is the Greek New Testament is not the word of God. It's not the inspired word of God. And, and now you're going to try to figure out an alleged original what somebody really meant. They said this, but they really meant this. Now you just throw out you just threw out the Bible. Is what you did. You just threw out the Bible throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> I am a hundred percent for looking as much as we can at the Jewish background to the New Testament, as much as we can, looking for better understanding of of, of Semitic grammar, 
vocabulary, be it Hebrew, be it Aramaic, as the case fits. Uh, we know that the writers of the New Testament, with the possible exception of Luke, were all Jews and thought in Jewish ways, and some thought very Hebraically, you would say, and they wrote in Greek accordingly. We understand that. That's very different from saying what we have is not the real word of God. And we need to go back to some alleged reconstruction. Forget about it. There is no original Hebrew, original Aramaic that we have in our possession. So what we have is the Greek New Testament. Thank God for it. It is the word of God. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday, 866-348-7884. Do you have a Jewish Related question of any kind, now is the time to call. 866-34-TRUTH. I got some really good emails this week, really informative, lots of great resources, all free from my own ministry. Yeah, I, I'm on our email list as well, so I see the emails as they go out. And uh, some of them come directly from me where I'm writing to you and sharing some things from my heart. Otherwise, it's our team putting them out for me and with me. And here are the latest resources and things. So if you're not getting them, there's so much good stuff out there. I, I was talking to some folks the other day doing a TV show, and I referenced the Real Messiah website. These were people who had been really following us in the Jewish work that we're doing. And I referenced Real Messiah. They didn't know about it. So I didn't know about Oh, all right. So first, let's make sure you're getting our emails. AskDrBrown.org, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Go there. If you're driving your car, you actually do it if you, even at a stoplight, you can do it that quickly. Put your name, first, last name, uh, email address, your physical address, if you want us to have that, put it in there, and boom, you'll be in our welcome program. You'll get a really neat little ebook from me on how to pray for America. And then head over to RealMessiah.com, RealMessiah.com. Now, don't do that at the stoplight because you're going to want to explore it. Wait till you have some time to do it. RealMessiah.com. You can watch debates I've had with rabbis. You can watch videos where we demolish the misinformation of, of Rabbi Tobia Singer as, as probably the most vocal counter-missionary rabbi. Uh, you can watch our, our, our Think It Through TV show, two seasons we did of that. All kinds of great resources there on the Real Messiah website. Okay. Let's go over to 1 Kings chapter 19. And I, I want to talk to you about prophecy for a little while. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that I was the, the loudest, most outspoken, charismatic 
voice calling for accountability with the failed and false Trump prophecies. And prior to that, in my 2018 book, Playing with Holy Fire, I had a whole chapter on unaccountable prophecy and a whole chapter on mercenary prophets. And going back years before that, I I raised issues about unaccountable prophecy. So as a charismatic Pentecostal myself, as someone who believes in the gift of prophecy today and someone who believes that there are prophets in the church today, not with the same authority and function as Old Testament prophets, but gifted and anointed in similar ways, in other ways, I believe in those things strongly. I have been used to speak words that have been accurate. I've had words spoken over me that have been accurate. I've seen the gift in operation, and I've seen the abuse. So just like when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and, and commended them for not lacking any spiritual gift and then corrected, 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 that's, that's my stance to embrace what God is doing and then to say, okay, we need correction. We need accountability. So there's no question that we've had a wave of unaccountable prophecy in the Pentecostal Charismatic Church, and this wave has been steady for many years, meaning that in many churches, a word can be spoken, and it's just like it's spoken in the air. And whether it happens, or if it happens, you make a big deal about it. If it doesn't, it's just no big deal. Or personal prophecies that are totally inaccurate, like no big deal. Or some major charismatic leader makes some proclamation of the angel of the Lord is touched down in the city and you will see change in the next six months and nothing happens at all in any way, even though people are praying and waiting and expecting. And you just go on to the next thing. That brings reproach to the name of the Lord. It brings reproach to the things of the Spirit. It brings reproach to the church in general, even to the non-charismatics, because those of you who are non-charismatic, you get tarred and feathered with mistakes that others have made. You, you, you get a bad reputation even though you didn't believe in this stuff to start. So by all means, we need greater accountability. By all means. And in the political seduction of the church, I have two whole chapters. What's the book? 13 chapters long? 14? Two whole chapters. So a, a lot of material. Dealing with this, when the prophets prophesied falsely, a whole chapter on that, naming specific names. And then, uh, the next chapter, the genesis of, of false prophecy, how we got off, how things went wrong. How did this happen? So I am all for that. At the same time, let's remember that prophecy can often be mysterious. That prophecy is not as simple as reading headlines in advance that many biblical prophecies only become clear as they come to pass. Remember, all the prophecies about the Messiah dying and rising from the dead became fully clear only after it happened. Looking back, it's like, oh, that's what it says. We have endless debates about the return of Jesus and the end of the age and millennial kingdom or not. Even though the Bible says a lot about it, it's future stuff. It's not all laid out like headlines in advance. Some of it is spoken in mystical language. And some of it comes to pass in different orders than we might expect. I'm just saying to be biblical. You say, Brian, you're just trying to cop out. The whole reason I set things up the way I did was to say that for years I have been calling for accountability. For years I've been saying we we need to, to be more careful with our words if we're claiming to speak for God. That's my position to this moment. 
as I've interacted with critics of the charismatic movement in, uh, over the years, I've said, you're absolutely right in some of your criticisms. I share them. I've addressed them as well. I've even said, if we were cleaning house more, if we were doing a better job of, of holding accountability within our own midst, that non-charismatic critics would not have to do as much as some of them have done. Of course, I believe others have thrown out the baby with the bathwater and others are rightly characterized as, as hypercritics. But amen, let's be accountable. First Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophecy, but test everything and hold fast to that which is good. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to that which is good. First Corinthians 14, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what has been said. Those that I know that are prophetic ministers with integrity today, if they feel that they have a message that they are to release through social media or release through an email or, or through book form, article form uh, for the body, uh, they will submit it to other prophetic leaders to pray about, to look at, to discern with them. And only then will they say, we feel right to release this. Now, things can happen spontaneously. A prophetic word can come spontaneously that no one was expecting to come. And now it's spoken. Now let it be tested or let it be evaluated over the years. But not everything happens with the timetable we expect. And not everything happens with the simplicity and the clear order that we expect. So I, I want to give you an explicit example from the Hebrew Bible. All right. Everybody with me. First Corinthians, first Corinthians, the Hebrew Bible. First Kings, first Kings, chapter 19. So Elijah is at Mount Horeb. He is meeting with God and God says this to him. This is God speaking directly to Elijah, all right? Because he's had the great victory uh, over Ahab and Jezebel, over the false prophets of, of Baal and Asherah. He's called on fire from heaven. Now the rain has come. I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be the highest prophetic moment in the Old Testament in terms of God vindicating the words of one of his servants. Obviously, dramatic things with Moses in the wilderness and stuff, uh, but, but this is dramatic in a different way, all right? And it's the one man crying out. But then when you have what's called the post-prophetic fallout, that's what some of us call it, after the prophetic high or the ministry high, or like, down the enemy comes really after your heart so jezebel's gonna kill him so he he just wants to let me die lord let me die and then i'm the only one out there and god says no there's seven thousand haven't bowed the knee to bottle but then god gives him this commission first kings 19 the lord said to him go back by the way you came and onto the wilderness of damascus when you get there anoint hazael as king of aram right and anoint jehu son of Nimshi, as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abba Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Whoever escapes the sword of Hazel shall be slain by Jehu. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu shall be slain by Elisha. <clears throat> okay, got that? So here's the order. You go there, you anoint Hazel, king of Aram. Also, you anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And you anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abba to succeed you as prophet. So Elisha, excuse me, Elijah anointed all three of those, correct? Wrong. He didn't. He didn't. 
what happened? He anointed Elisha. So Eliyahu in Hebrew, Elijah anointed Elisha. Elisha. That's the only one he did. That's the third on the list. That's the only one he did. And it happens immediately after that. All right, so if I'm Elijah, I understand I got a threefold task, these three men, and presumably in that order. He goes out of there uh, immediately. He set out from there, verse 19, and came upon Elisha, son of Shaphat. So he sets him apart. That's, that's, the, that's the only one he does. The only one. You say, and Elisha anointed the other two. Well, not exactly. He prophesied to Hazael that he would be the king. And he sent someone on his behalf to anoint Jehu. So if someone prophesied that today, and, and it unfolded in that way, I could see people saying, it didn't happen, it's false prophecy. He got two out of three wrong. And, and, and Elisha didn't even do it exactly what was said there. So, but it all happened through Elijah and his successor, Elisha. And it happened in a different order than expected, and certainly in a different way than was expected. But did it come to pass? Well, either it came to pass or God himself was a liar. So you have to understand that sometimes prophecy unfolds in a different order than we expect. And sometimes it unfolds in different ways than we expect. So let's hold prophetic voices and prophecies accountable. Yes, but let us do it in a way that is fair to the spirit of the prophecy. If that overall word came to pass, a little different than we expected, that was from the Lord. All right? Don't throw the thing out. Recognize what God did. We'll be right back. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on The Line of Fire. Michael Brown, as always... Delighted to be with you. All right. Uh, Do I want to answer some questions on Twitter? Yeah, let let me just say one last thing uh, about prophecy. We absolutely must have accountability in the charismatic Pentecostal movement. We must. It's a real problem. We have to have accountability. And to say it again, if we did a better job, especially on a national large level, of expecting accountability. In other words, if, if, you, if, if I claim to be speaking from the Lord and I declare that in, by the end of, of 2022 that there will be a massive recession that will affect the world economy for the next 10 years and it's going to happen and no such thing happens, you better believe that leaders I work with need to hold me accountable. My board needs to hold me accountable. Those who listen to me and follow me need to hold me accountable. Absolutely, 100%. 
And if the word is, the Lord showed me uh, as a sequence of colors and blue and green and yellow and red. And I see the colors unfolding over the next 20 years in the lives of the holy remnants. Like, what does that even mean? Well, <laughs> there's nothing to hold the cow book because we don't even know what it means. So I'm not talking about our language being so nebulous that nobody can figure out what we mean. And I'm not talking about no accountability. I'm simply saying that the prophecy as it unfolds is not just like math. There are Old Testament prophecies that we wrestle with as scholars because they were major prophecies and they didn't come to pass as spoken. Was there some repentance that took place that we don't know about? Possibly. Or will it be that this prophecy is still to be fulfilled? These are things we work through as scholars. So if there are questions about the unfolding of biblical prophecy that we all agree is God's word, there's going to be some mystery and sometimes ambiguity in the unfolding of prophecy today. So I'll give you a quick example. There, there is a woman that left the service. Service was basically over. She, she was on her way out, was walking in the parking lot, and the brother who had been ministering still wanted to minister to a few more people. And he, he got a word in his, in his mind, and he said, where is so-and-so? Gave the woman's first name. Where is so-and-so? Well, the moment he said her, they all knew who he was talking about. They said, oh, she, she left. She's in the parking lot. I said, please get her. Please get her. So she, folks say, hey, the brother has a word for you. So she comes back in. Now, what he didn't know was that her husband was one of the pastoral leaders in this church. I heard it from people who were there, all right, that her husband was one of the pastoral leaders of the church. And let's just give him the name Timothy, all right? And Timothy died in a car accident within that year. And she was there with her son. We'll call the son Joshua, all right? She, when she left the service... She was with her son, Joshua, and he was standing next to her. This man didn't know any of the story. And he said, you've been asking the Lord, what about all the promises to Timothy? What about all the promises to Timothy? There were prophecies that were spoken over him, the words that were spoken over him, but he died before they were fulfilled. So she's doing what many of us would do. Lord, what happened to the prophecies? And he said, again, he doesn't know any of them. He said, the Lord said the prophecies for Timothy will be fulfilled through Joshua. Well, I, I take that as something glorious and beautiful and holy and sacred, and I say the Lord is amazing. But when those words were spoken over Timothy, you would have expected they were fulfilled through Timothy, just like those words for Elijah. You think they'll all be fulfilled directly through Elijah? They weren't. They weren't. One of them was. The other, through Elijah, in an unexpected way, and the other three, someone Elisha sent to do the work. So let's be fair in our holding accountable. My colleague Steve Alt pointed this out because you'll have critics of the New Testament or counter missionaries. They'll say, look, Jesus said not one stone will be left, uh, 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 you know, in Jerusalem, not the temple, the Jerusalem, the whole city will be flattened. But look, we still have the exterior wall, what's called the wailing wall, right? We still have that standing. So obviously he was a false prophet. And, and Steve said, oh, yeah, the whole city demolished, destroyed. The Romans coming in, crushing the place. 
and, and literally raising the city, R-A-Z, raising it where they it's tore things down, tore the stones down, it tear the temple down, and there's part of an exterior wall standing, and you say, Jesus was a false prophet because there's, there's a stone over there. No, the, when he says not a stone standing, it's not, you go through all Jerusalem, like, oh, I saw two stones. It's like, oh, man, it happened. That's how the prophet spoke. They painted a large picture. So the same standard that we hold for Jesus and the biblical prophets, you don't want to hold a higher one for prophets today. All right, all right. <clears throat> God, I said that. Let's see. Um, all right, few questions here. King, with lowercase k, on Twitter. The Mark of the Beast is 666, and when we use the internet, we type www.suchandsuch.com. The numerical value of W is 6. If you don't trust me, then Google what is the numerical value of W in Hebrew and see it yourself. Be blessed. Okay. Number one. Number one. Yes, Vav is 6 in, in Hebrew. So David is, is 10. 4 plus 6. Uh, excuse me, is 14. 4 plus 6 plus 4. Numerical value 14, which probably ties in with Matthew's threefold genealogy of 14 in, in Matthew 1. In any, in any case, I don't have to type www when I give uh, an internet address. You don't have to type that anymore. Just plug in the address, and it'll go right there. That's the first thing. Second thing, this is a person. The 666 is about a person. And it's not the mark of the beast. It's the number of, of the beast. So if you want to say the internet is the beast of the book of Revelation, you're missing the point. It's a description of a person. In any case, it's interesting. Great. Interesting. But that's an aside. Okay. Uh, Asha L. Why do these DNA companies refuse to acknowledge Hebrew ancestry unless they're paid a large sum of money or political gain? I don't know what you mean by that. Nancy and I both did our DNA. We did it with different companies. Somehow we weren't, we didn't coordinate when we did it. But it does show um, Sephardic ancestry and Ashkenazi ancestry, both of those going back ultimately to Israelite ancestry. Uh, you could have what's called the priestly, priestly gene of the ironic one, and you know that's that's traceable. So I, I have no idea what you mean by that. And one of my colleagues, black American, has done DNA testing to try to check things more accurately with African heritage and then where that could trace back potentially to ancient Israel. Um, so I, I honestly don't know what you're referring to. If there's something real with some companies, I have no idea about it whatsoever. To my knowledge, that does not exist. Andrew. Would it be heretical to say to an unbeliever that blames God for himself being a sinner that Jesus took ownership of that charge with his death on the cross? I'm thinking his sacrifice nullifies any accusation. Uh, I agree, but I don't agree. I agree that if you say God's not fair punishing me because this is the way I was born. I didn't have a choice but to be a sinner. I was born into this fallen human race. I didn't ask to be born. I, and, and if I killed myself, it doesn't change the fact I'm going to stand before God. I didn't ask for any of this. I'm doing what my nature tells me to do. Yeah, I can say no to certain things, but I can never meet God's standards. So I, I'm, I'm going to be punished one day for stuff that I, I, didn't ask, I didn't ask to be here. 
And I didn't ask to be born into a sinful race. So it's unfair that I'm going to be punished. Well, that you can completely nullify by saying, well, Yeshua died on the cross to pay for all your sins. He went far beyond anything we could possibly deserve or ask for. He died in our place so we could have eternal life, so we could receive the benefit of his perfect life. So God loves you that much to say you don't have to die in your sin. You, you don't have to pay that penalty. So, yes, that nullifies that accusation. If it's not about punishment, but about behavior, the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins is not directly the answer to that. In other words, if someone says, look, I, God's, God's calling me to live a certain way, but I can't in myself. I'm unable because this is my nature, and he knows that. Well, then the answer to that would be yes. And that's why Jesus came, not just to die for our sins, but to empower us to live a holy life and where we fall short and turn to God asking for mercy, he has mercy. So as long as we rightly apply that, yes, it does undercut the accusation and, and say that's why Yeshua said you must be born again. You must be born from, I was born this way. All right, you must be born again. And through me, you can be born again. Hey, friends, get your best questions ready for our next broadcast. You've got questions, we've got answers. And be sure to check out my website for my latest articles and videos. AskDrBrown.org. AskDrBrown.org. Another program powered by the Truth Network.